The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to John 16. I do have, um, it's going to be a little bit different because I'm going to skip around today. Um, Today is the day that I'm actually going to talk about John's uh, farewell discourse. That's the section of scripture that we're in right now, the gospel of John, where Jesus is explaining and teaching his disciples for the last time before he goes to the cross. And there's this um, idea about prayer that runs through John 14, 15, and 16. And it's a startling um, bit of scripture, actually. And we go, what do we do with this? What do we do with um, prayer, as it were? And so we're going to look at John 14, verses 13 and 14. We're going to look at John 15, 7 and 8, and verse 16. And then we're going to look at John 16, verses 23 and 24. Now, the reason I'm doing it in this way, as I said, back in John 14 and in John 15, I sort of skipped over these because one of the ways that John uh, teaches us, instructs us, is that he, he hits different topics and he begins to recapitulate those topics over and over again. We see that uh, not only in the Gospel of John, but we also see that within the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we also see that in the book of Revelation where there's this recapitulation that um, happens again and again. So we're going to talk about prayer today. But um, before we begin, um, pray with me. Father, prayer is, is a hard thing for many of us. Um, Father, oftentimes we feel very insecure when we um, think about prayer, when we think about um, how often we pray, how we pray, what we should pray for. Father, some of us are discouraged in the midst of our prayer lives. It seems as if we've been praying for the same things over and over again. And either you're not gonna bring it about or you ask us to persevere, but we're weary. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that as we read um, from the Gospel of John, your word, your love letter given to us, I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit would be working in us, that it would drive home the truths of asking you and abiding in you. And that, Father, we would think of um, Jesus as our best friend and that we would come to you boldly in Jesus' name with all of our requests. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, um, that you would cause us to, to want to pray, to love to pray, to love to converse with you so, Father, would you work that out and, t- Father, take away the fears and um, any of the shame that we might have that lingers. Father, help me to um, explain um, prayer well. And, Father, I pray, Lord, for those who are hearing, that they would um, have ears to hear and open hearts. And, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be working in them to receive well your word of truth. So, Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, It's a little different, but I'm gonna read for you in John 14, John 15, and John 16, kind of where we are, and you can follow along uh, here. So John 14, verses 13 and 14. uh, Let me read this for you. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, verses seven and eight, and again in verse 16. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, 
my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now again in John 16, verses 23 and 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, in the midst of John chapter 14, 15, and 16, there's this um, idea, and it's this overarching idea that Jesus is trying to convey to the disciples. And it's this idea, and we talked about it a few weeks ago, and it's this idea of abiding in, abiding in Christ. Now, abiding with Christ, I talked about it a few weeks ago, and I, I like, liken it to this, that we remain in Christ, that we rest in Christ, and that we rejoice in Christ. That's, that's my idea of abiding. But there's, there's this other aspect of abiding overarching. And let me, let me um, uh, explain it like this. You know, abiding means that you spend significant time with someone, Right? that you are in a relationship with someone, and if you're in a relationship and you're abiding, then you are spending significant time with that person. Now, let me give you an example in, from my own life where I think about this, and um, I, I grew up next door to my grandparents, as many of you know, in Virginia Beach uh, on a 70-acre farm. Uh, my grandfather uh, had chickens and turkeys and pigs and all kinds of, and geese and all kinds of other things. And one of the things that would happen is my, my, uh, my parents built on, the, uh, my grandparents gave them three acres next door to the, the, their house. And so we built a house, or my parents built a house in 1980 next door to my grandparents. And so what would happen is there was this little uh, ditch between our houses and a little bridge. And I, as a small child, a young, young boy, would spend a great deal of time over with my grandparents. Actually, my, my, my grandmother actually watched me. And I remember as um, it would be about you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock, um, and I would see my grandfather's truck come down the lane. And I remember on the couch, I would get up on the cushions and look outside, and I would see my grandfather coming around the bend and I would get so excited. And then when my grandfather would park, I would run out to meet him, you know, after he had gone past the driveway. I would run out to meet him, and he would take me, and he would pick me up in his arms, and he would carry me around the farm to do whatever, you know, chores that he had uh, with his grandson. Now, to me, that's a picture of abiding, where you're sort of scooped up in the father's arms, and you're abiding. And, and, and in the midst of this abiding and spending time, I remember um, these are some of the sweetest times I've had. I remember as a child, um, I remember as a little boy, I would go um, when he was home for the day, I would go next door and I'd say, Grandma, where's Granddaddy? And she goes, Oh, well, Granddaddy's in the back, and he's either feeding the turkeys, feeding the chickens, he's burning a copper pile, he's doing something over here, he's doing it over there. And I remember going outside, and I remember wherever he was is where I wanted to be. He might be felling trees because they would chop wood, or they would be splitting wood for, for, the, for the winter, all these types of things. And I remember walking out, and, and we had this sort of sandy gravel area. And I remember, I can see this, my grandfather's footprints in the sand, or in the gravel, you know, part of it was sands, part of it was gravel. And I remember walking 
in his footprints to try to get to him. I think that's what abiding looked like for me. And, and when I was with him, I would ask questions of him. You know, I would ask him questions about, you know, about life, about dinner, about chickens and turkeys and why geese were so mean, the best way to cut down a tree. Um, you know, I would ask him questions about, you know, uh, splitting wood, log splitters, chainsaws, um, the old days um, when, when he lived during the Depression about his job carrying ice cubes, like these huge, massive cubes of ice, because he was an ice man. And when he lost that job, in order to put food on the table during the Great Depression, he actually dug graves. That's what he did. And I'd ask him about how he met my grandma, and we would just talk and converse. And I remember the other thing about this is that I could ask my grandfather anything, and it was a conversation. And I could ask him, and oftentimes it would be, you know, granddaddy, I sure am thirsty. He goes, well, I think we need to go get you a Coke. And I'm like, that's what I think too, granddaddy. <laughs> and granddaddy, you know, because uh, I mean, he just, uh, granddaddy just have stuff, right? You know, I mean, he had a Coke machine like out in his uh, like kind of shop on the farm. And it was an old Coke machine and he would fill it up and we would go there and he would always have a quarter that he would just recycle through. And we put it in and we get a Coke. And, you know, regardless, you know, you could just ask your granddaddy anything. And, and I think about that with regard to abiding is that, you know, I could just talk with my grandfather. He would pick me up in his arms and I could ask him for things. And anytime I asked him for things, he was always going to give me something good. Always. Now, there were other times I would ask him things that he knew I would get in trouble with. Like, I remember I was probably like six, seven years old, and I was with my grandfather, and I said, you know, I sure wish I had a gun. And he's like, yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> but he wasn't going to give me a gun, right? Like, he, I, like, I might have asked him for that, but he wasn't going to give me that. Like, he might have given me a cap gun, or I can't remember how many cap guns, like little sheriff buttons he gave me. I remember one time yeah, I, I was getting a little bit older, and I said, you know, you know, every boy needs a knife. And he goes, yeah, I think that's about right. Every boy does need a knife. And he said, well, you think I could get a knife? And he goes, yeah, I think I can find you a knife. So I remember my grandfather gave me a knife. Now, I mean, this knife, uh, he gave it to me, and I thought it was a prized possession. But I got to tell you, that was the dullest knife that my grandfather gave me. It wouldn't cut butter. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, it was, it was the dullest knife. But he gave me that because he knew that I could handle a dull knife at a very young age. Now, he was going to, you know, make sure I was okay. And, you know, I'm sure my mom wasn't real happy that he, she gave it to me and all those other things. But we were just out in the woods playing, having a good time. Now, I say all of that because that type of relationship that, that again, for me, it's probably the, the closest one I think of. Like, um, when I think about our, our Father in heaven, like, what does it look like that we run to him when we see him? What does it look like that we can ask him anything? What is it like when we say, you know, I sure am thirsty. Would you give me a drink? And he goes, I'll give you the best I have. You know, I mean, that's the beauty. I mean, I mean sometimes some people would say, well, just go ask dad. He'll give you anything. I don't agree with that. You go to your parents. They're not going to give you everything. But you go to your granddad. <laughs> He's going to give you every dollar in his pocket. He's going to spoil you rotten because that's what grandfathers do. Now, in the same way, what we see in the midst of these passages is this, is that these passages on prayer in John 14, 15, and, and, and 16 is, is this idea, is that in the midst of abiding with Christ, being connected to, 
walking with Jesus, being in a reconciled relationship with the Father, there's this yearning to commune and to pray. And in the midst of this, here's, here's the, the overarching thing. And we're gonna, get, we're gonna talk about some of this, but look at John 14, verses 13 and 14. It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, twice in John 14, the, the idea, and I think that we, we get caught up in that word whatever initially, but really the, the, the word that we see is ask. Are we asking our Father for, for all the things that bubble up in our soul? Look at John 15, seven and eight and verse 16. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and so there, there are some conditions there. It's a, if we're in relationship, meaning that if, if we are in relationship together, notice what it says, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified and that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And again, when in verse 16, you see this again, whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you. So twice in 14, twice in 15, and then look at verse, in chapter 16, verses 23 and 24 regarding prayer. Truly, truly. Now we know that. We, we've seen this about 25 times in the Gospel of John. Whenever John uses the term truly, truly, he's saying, listen up. This is significant for you to understand. It's truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, twice he tells us to ask. Once he says, actually, you haven't asked, asked for anything, but six different times. You know, the, the, the refrain that comes through in John 14, 15, and 16 is that in the midst of this community, this communion with the Father through the Son, that the Father is saying, ask, just ask. Whatever is on your heart. I think about this, um, and, I, and I learned this from Paul Miller, his book, A Praying Life, which by far I think is the, one of the best prayer books I've ever read. Um, but he says, you know, what is going on in your soul right now? And he calls this the, the beach ball prayer. You know, when, when you're um, a small child and you're in the pool and you have a, a, a ball and, you, and you, you're doing everything you can to take that ball and to push it down into the to the water. I've used this before, but you're doing it because you know that if you let go, it'll come racing to the surface because of the air and it'll sort of burst forth from the surface of the, of the pool. But it's a game you play because you're in the pool and you're having a good time. And quite frankly, we should all be playing that this week because it's hopefully it's the last week of summer. Um, but this beach ball prayer, it's, it's, he, he likens it to this. This is what's going on in your heart. Like, this is what's causing you turmoil. This is what's on your mind. And are you bringing this to the Father through the Son, empowered by the Spirit, saying, Lord, this is what's on my heart and on my mind. Lord, would you please help me to understand these things? This is the ask part. We're not asking um, you know, for affirmation of decisions we've already made, but we're asking the Father for wisdom. In the same way that I would ask my grandfather, you know, how do we do this? Or how do you fall that tree? Or how does this chainsaw work? Or how do you start it? Like, please impart to me wisdom so that I can live. Now, you know, Spurgeon um, has these great quotes with regard to, to prayer. 
Um, he actually said this. He said, if, if any of you should ask me for the epitome of the Christian life, I would say that it is one word, prayer. <laughs> the habit of private prayer and the constant practice of heart communion with God are the surest indicators of the work of the Holy Spirit upon the soul. I mean, Spurgeon, who wrote many books, who had many books, who loved many books, here's what he said. He said, all of our libraries and our studies are mere emptiness compared with our prayer closets. You think about um, him as a, a great preacher, and he would, he, he, he would say this. He would say, um, I would rather teach one man to pray than to teach 10 men to preach <laughs> in terms of who he is. He said, a Christian's vigor, happiness, growth, and usefulness all depend upon prayer. Um, so we, we think about that, and, and we go to prayer, and, and prayer's just hard. I mean, there are times when prayer is just very, very difficult. Um, and we think about prayer in this way. Uh, David Powlison says this, is, it's, it's hard to pray. Um, he writes this in the foreword to the book, A Praying Life. He says, it's hard to pray. It's hard enough for many of us to make an honest request to a friend we trust for something we truly need, but when the request gets labeled praying and the friend is termed God, things often get very tangled up. You've heard the contorted syntax, formulaic phrases, meaningless repetition, vague non-request, pious tones of voice, and an air of confusion. If you talk to your friends and family that way, they'd think you'd lost your mind. But you've probably talked that way to God. You've known people who treat prayer like a rabbit's foot for warding off bad luck and bringing goodies. You've known people who feel guilty because their quantity of prayer fails to meet some presumed standard. Maybe you're even one of those people. Prayer, it tends to become a production and a problem. But our life, our life, it's always a production and a problem. You cycle through your to-do list, your anxieties, your distractions, your pressures, your pleasures, your irritants. God, he's there somewhere, sometimes. Somehow, these two problematic, problematic productions and the Lord of heaven and earth don't all get on the same page very often. But prayer isn't meant to be a production or a problem. And God is here now. Prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. He says the best, the best the world has to offer is to teach you how to talk to yourself. Change what you tell yourself and your feelings about what happened will change. Change your self-talk and how you feel about yourself will change. Talk yourself out of getting upset about what you can't change. Do something constructive about what you can change. Those are the world's best efforts. It's a familiar but abnormal way to live. But Jesus lives and teaches something different. What he does and helps you do is unfamiliar but normal. It's human and it's humane, how life's meant to be. He teaches you how to stop talking to yourself. He shows how to stop making prayer into a production. Jesus teaches you to start talking to your father, as he put it to Mary Magdalene from the cross. He shows you how to start talking with God, who rules the world, who has freely chosen to take your best interest to heart. Talking life over with this unseen God is the sort of conversation worth calling prayer. 
The Bible's prayers traffic in both daily life and the real God. They bring real troubles and need to a God who really listens. By seeing how life and God weave together, you'll discover the joy of living as God's child. Experience the adventure of walking closely with your father and good shepherd. I think that sums up for me kind of what's going on in the midst of prayer. We struggle with, with prayer. And then when we think about prayer, we think about our own prayerlessness. And then we feel bad that we haven't prayed enough. And then we go, well, how do I bring this back? And how do I work this out? And how do I pray? Can I pray about anything? Or, or, or think about this. Look at John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Or if you look um, in verse 15, chapter 15, verses seven and eight, it says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I mean, think about that. Whatever you ask in verse um, 16, and then in verse, again, 23 and 24, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. And you look at that and you go, okay, does he really mean whatever? Does the Lord God of heaven, as he writes three different times in the farewell discourse to the disciples, does he really mean that we can bring whatever we have to him? How do you explain the term whatever? Do we have to qualify it? Or can we just bring whatever we have to our Father in heaven? Every issue. Now, some scholars um, will actually say this. Some scholars, uh, to the rescue, will read it like this. Uh, One scholar said, a cursory reading of John 14, 13, and 14 may give people the indication that Jesus will give a person anything he wants. Satan would love to get us to believe the lie that God answers our prayers according to our will. Once we discover that God is not answering our request for riches, fame, and glory, we chalk that God is not answering our, our, that we, we chalk Christianity up to being a sham and accuse Jesus of breaking his promises. Jesus is really saying, ask me to do anything for you in the areas of my work and I will do it. Now, Paul Miller says, if we intend to be effective witnesses, we must employ God's assistance through prayer, asking only that his will be done, not ours. We're even saying that, right? You know, Father, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done, right? So there is this idea that, um, and here's what he says. He goes, "If, if that scholar is true, he goes to paraphrase, this is Paul Miller, to paraphrase this scholar, what Jesus really means is if we are going on a missions trip, God will help us. But even then, we have to say, your will be done. The writer limited the extravagance of Jesus' promise to overtly religious activity such as witnessing. Without realizing it, he brought into the enlightenment model and relegated prayer to our private world. He solved the problem of Jesus' extravagant claims by explaining them away. He kept God's infinite but lost his closeness. Now, this scholar is correct in that prayer is not a cosmic pinata, and the Lord God of heaven is not our genie in the bottle that we rub or say certain words to get what we want when we pray. But the scholar is wrong because six different times it says, ask whatever you want. Now, there are some qualifications, but look at this for a second. When you look at John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, there is this aspect that there will be um, glorifying things that God answers in the midst of our prayer. 
So how do we know what will glorify the Son? How do we know what will glorify the Father? How do we know what the Father wants? How do we begin to shape our lives in conformity to the image of Jesus so that our prayers are aligning themselves? It's by being in the word of God. It's by knowing what God loves. It's by asking him questions in the midst of prayer and finding the answers within his revealed word. And in the midst of answering prayer, we see that the prayers that we get will be things that glorify the Son. Oftentimes, we ask because we, we, we ask wrongly We ask wrongly and we ask selfishly because sometimes in the midst of our asking, we actually ask things like, Lord, please, Lord, could I please just have a billion dollars? That's all I want, a billion dollars. And I'm here to tell you, if you received a billion dollars, it may very well ruin your soul. It's interesting sometimes that the very things that are vainglorious that we ask for are the things that the Father doesn't give us because they would ruin us utterly. I'm telling you, if somebody gave our church, I'm not kidding when I say this, if somebody gave our church, let's say $100 million, the best thing that we could do with it is give it away. Because when you no longer are faith-based and trusting in Jesus and you begin to trust in a bank account, when that happens, you could ruin your soul. And and you talk about fighting? We see some fighting going on in the church right then about, oh, I want this and I want this and we need to have this and all of these other things and we should give it here, we should give it there. And I mean, the best thing that we could do if we got a $100 million endowment is to start giving it away to missions. Give it away, give it away. Plant more churches, send more missionaries out. Let's give it away, let's give it away. Now, we ask selfishly and, and certainly, like just like my grandfather was not gonna give me a gun at age six or seven, because it would harm me, our Father in Heaven's not going to give us something that's actually going to destroy us. Now, when you look at verses chapter 15, verses seven and eight, again, it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. So there's this, this idea that, that you bear much fruit And so prove to be my disciple. So not only will answered prayer be things that glorify the Son and the Father through the Son, but we also see that answered prayers will also occur because they will bear much fruit and that we will prove to be his disciples as we bear much fruit. In verse 16 of John 15, it says that your fruit should abide, meaning that your fruit should should be, you should be bearing fruit and and fruit that abides. Um, One of the things that, that happens, and, and you guys have seen this, is if you put an old banana next to new bananas, they ripen very quickly. I don't know if you guys have noticed that or not, right? I mean, so when you get bananas in, if you have an old banana, just all of a sudden, they'll be dark and nasty and only good for banana bread within like three or four days. So what does it mean that this fruit will abide forever? Well, I think what he's saying there is that there is this, um, this, allusion to that we should be bearing fruit in the midst of the gospel, that we should be proclaiming the gospel to others and bringing people into the kingdom of heaven, bringing people into the family of God, and that that fruit will abide forever. So there's this idea where even in the midst of praying, things change for us. Now, I think that when we look again, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. 
that's troubling to me. And here's what I mean by that. If you go back to John chapter 16, look at John chapter 16. Um, look at the very last verse of John chapter 16, verse 33. We'll get there next week. Now he says, he sums up everything right before he get, begins to pray, saying this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I'm all good with that, right? Like, I'm all good. Like, awesome. But then he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if I am reading that, if I'm a disciple, I'm like, well, you just said six different times, ask whatever you wish. Lord Jesus, I'm going to pray that I don't have tribulation. But you just said I'm going to have tribulation. So what's the benefit of me asking you in the Father's name, you know, in Jesus' name, if I won't have tribulation, but you just said I'm going to have tribulation, so there must be something in there, in there that actually tribulation and, and some of the suffering, some of the sacrifice, some of the difficulties that we have in life will actually be to our benefit rather than to our detriment. But it's troubling. And what happens is, at least in my own heart, is then when I read things like, you will have tribulation, but Lord, if I, if I ask you in your name not to have tribulation, but tribulation comes, you know what happens? I begin to think that prayer doesn't work, and I become very cynical about life with God. And in the midst of that, you know what happens? I become prayerless. Because I either think he doesn't listen, or he doesn't care. And yet what Jesus says six different times, and this is the emphasis I want you to get, he says, ask the Father. Ask the Father about everything. Ask the Father about what's going on in your life. You know, like, are, are you looking for a promotion at work? Ask the Father and seek wisdom from him. You know, are you thinking about you know, dating a girl or, or a boy? Ask the Father, pray to him. Pray, 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 commune. Commune, commune. Again, in the midst of this, there's, there's this, this wonderful idea that, that prayer is meant to um, grow us in joy. Notice in, in John chapter 16, um, not only should you know, our prayers glorify the Son in verse 14, or chapter 14, not only should it uh, produce fruit, and, and, and eternal fruit in John 15, but in John 16, it actually says this, ask, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive, and there is this sense in which that your joy may be full. And what he's saying is, like, ask the Father, and as, he, and as you see the Father answering prayer requests, as he answers you, whether in the affirmative or the negative, he's asking you to pray to him so that your joy may be full. So that you know that your father loves you. In a similar way, I mean, when I would walk around the farm with a, a little Coke bottle in my hand as a young child, I knew that my grandfather loved me and that he wanted to give me good things. Now, when we pray... We are called to pray in Jesus' name. So what does it mean that we pray in Jesus' name? Well, uh, let me ex explain that. Um, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are actually asking the Father, um, actually, let me read for you uh, from, from this, you know, when we pray in Jesus' name, um, when we pray um, 
In Jesus' name, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it. It's better for me anyway. Um, Paul Miller describes it this way. Imagine that you are a bedraggled, um, poor person in a, in a king's kingdom. And then in the midst of, of being poor and bedraggled, that your clothes are ripped and torn, you smell because you've been on a long journey, you, know, you, you smell, you, um, you're struggling, and you approach the king's gate. And as you approach the king's gate, the guards at the gate, they actually lower their spears and will not allow you to approach. And you say, but I need to see the king. And they go, you're not going to see the king. But in the midst of your bedraggled state, you're poor, you're, you're, you're bereft of any money, you, you say this, you say, but in Jesus' name, I'm here. At which point the guards open up and allow you to enter into the gate and they allow you entrance into the, the throne room of grace so that you can see the Father. You see, what happens when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is that I am in Christ. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I am now justified and have been redeemed and I am a part of the family of God. And everything that I ask of the Father it's as if Jesus is asking his father rather than myself. Um, in a similar way, many of you have sent Christmas cards. And in the midst of sending bulk Christmas cards, every once in a while you'll send a Christmas card that does not get delivered and it gets sent back to you. And it gets sent back to you because you don't have any postage on that particular card. Now they'll deliver a Christmas card if you have postage, but when you don't have postage, it comes back to you. In a similar way, Every time we pray in Jesus' name, essentially we're putting stamps on our prayers as we send them to our Father in heaven. You see, Jesus pays so that we might have communion with the Father. The most important thing in your life, the most important question that you will ever be asked in your life is this. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord and Savior? Is he the one who actually puts the stamps on your prayers? Is he the one who gives access to the Father in his name? Is he the one that, that we can come and, and cry out, Abba, Father, to the Lord God of heaven because of his substitution on the cross for us? If that's true, then you can commune with the Father through the Son. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magic formula, but rather it's the great redemption of your souls. Now, one of the things that I, I, I've seen in, in the midst of you know, being a pastor is that oftentimes we become uh, prayerless and then we don't know how to start praying. Um, and, and we make some, some of these mistakes in the midst of our pray, praying life. But let me um, refer to, to James chapter four, verses two and three. You see, there's this, this, this walkway that we have, and we can fall on one side or the other of this walkway when we think about prayer. In, in James chapter four, verses two and three, it says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There, I think there is this um, idea that we have two different places that we could fall off a cliff. Now, imagine yourself, you're walking on a narrow strip, or maybe you're on Angel's Landing in, in Zion National Park, and you could fall to the right or you could fall to the left. 
And what you need to do is you need to stay connected to the trail and maybe the chains after um, you're, you're walking to the, to the crest, the summit. Now, the first one in James chapter four, or James chapter um, uh, four that speaks about is this. The first mistake that we can make is we don't ask for anything from the Father. We don't ask for anything. And the antidote for that, for that is that we need to ask boldly. We need to ask Jesus and God the Father in Jesus' name everything that is going on in our heart and mind. And you should do it in a conversational way. There's not special words that you have to use, but just talk to them like you would talk to a good friend. When you're by yourself, when you're in the car, um, when you're taking a walk, just pray and do it in a conversational tone. The other thing, um, that the other error that we can make along walking that ridge is we could not ask, or the other one that it says in James chapter four is that we could ask selfishly. Anybody here ever ask a selfish prayer? Just so you know, a selfish prayer might look like, Lord, help my team win. <laughs> You're like, really? You know, I don't know. Is God glorified in this or that? I don't know. Like, it might be a better prayer to say, Lord, help both of these people who are playing not to get hurt. Lord, would you be merciful and allow them to, to not be hurt? Would you be glorified in the midst of this game? And, and I know many of you are saying, well, God's going to be glorified if my team wins, Right? No, no, that's called vainglory. That's called self-glory, right? That's how we become fanatics. So there's this, we can ask selfishly, and the antidote to asking selfishly is saying this, Lord, not my will, but what you will. Not my will, but yours be done. We cannot ask on one side of the cliff, and on the other side of the cliff, we can ask selfishly, but what we're called to do is we're meant to ask the Lord and ask in Jesus' name. And I mean, ask anything. There's a, there's a, a new book by Paul Miller. It's called A Praying Church. And he, and he writes this about um, prayer. And, and some of the people struggle with prayer and our culture struggles with prayer because we, we struggle with what we've seen depicted in, on, on TV and other places about prayer. Uh, you know, prayer that, we, that is depicted as being very inauthentic, we see this, right? We see this inauthentic prayer in the midst of like TV and drama. He uses this, um, uh, in, in, this um, in the movie Meet the Parents, the prospective Jewish son-in-law, Greg, is asked by his future father-in-law, Robert De Niro, to say grace. Now, some of you have seen this movie. I'm not advocating for this, but anyway, it's a funny scene. You know, Greg, who's clearly never prayed, puts together an awkward pietistic prayer we thank you, O sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for this smorgasbord that you've so aptly lain at our table this day, each day by day. And in his groping for words, he finds himself reciting the lyrics of day by day from the musical Godspell, after which he tacks on a hasty amen. And we see that, right? And so that's, that's our culture's view of prayer, that it's perfunctory, it's ritualistic, there's no communion, there's no authenticity with regard to prayer. Now, there are times um, where we see that there is actually authentic prayer um, in the movie uh, Glory, in the midst of this Civil War movie Glory, when the African-American 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment is about to go into battle, a first private prays, tomorrow we go into battle. So Lord, let me fight with the rifle in one hand and good book in the other that if I should die at the muzzle of the rifle, die on water or on land, 
I may know that you, blessed Jesus Almighty, are with me, and I have no fear. Amen. There's there's a difference there between this, this comical ruse of a prayer, we see that in other places, versus authentic prayer. I mean, sometimes our authentic prayers are, Lord, would you please help? Like, and, and I think that this is authentic when we ask people, ask the Lord God, Lord, I see this person suffering. Would you alleviate their suffering? Would you comfort them? Would you help them? Would you be with them? It's, just that, it's that simple sometimes. Oftentimes we don't pray because we don't know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray. Um, we, we think about... Um, you know, what does it look like? And, you know, let me, um, let me conclude with this. Just ask. Ask your Father in heaven. Pray each morning. Pray in the middle of the day. Pray at the end of the day. Pray whenever you can. Pray like you're walking with your grandfather. John Piper uh, was speaking about this, uh, the duty of prayer and he says this, you know, every once in a while he'll, he'll talk about the duty of prayer, like praying in the morning, praying in the evening, praying in the evening. Uh, or, and, and he says this, he goes, and meanwhile, the devil is whispering all over this room. The pastor is getting legalistic now. He's starting to use guilt now. He's getting out the law now, to which I say to hell with the devil and all his destructive lies. Be free. Is it true that intentional, regular, disciplined, earnest, Christ-dependent, God-glorifying, joyful prayer is a duty? Do I go to pray with many of you on you know, different prayer nights during the week? He says, you can call it a duty. It's a duty the way it's a duty of a scuba diver to put on his air tank before he goes underwater. It's a duty the way pilots listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty the way soldiers in combat clean their rifles and load their guns. It's a duty the way hungry people eat food. It's a duty the way thirsty people drink water. It's a duty the way a deaf man puts in his hearing aid. It's a duty the way a diabetic takes his insulin. It's a duty the way Pooh Bear looks for honey. I thought that was funny. It's a duty the way pirates look for gold. Because I hate the devil and the way he is killing some of you by persuading you it is legalistic to be regular in your prayers as you are in your eating and sleeping and internet use. Do you not see what a sucker he is making out of you? He is laughing up his sleeve at how easy it is to deceive Christians about the importance of prayer. You see, God has given us a means of grace. If we do not use them to their fullest advantage, our complaints against him will not stick. If we don't eat, we starve. If we don't drink, we get dehydrated. If we don't exercise a muscle, it atrophies. If we don't breathe, we suffocate. And just as there are physical means of life, there are spiritual means of grace. Resist the lies of the devil and get a bigger breakthrough in prayer than you've ever had. Brothers and sisters, I'm not here to like guilt you into anything. But I'm here to tell you, if you want to walk with God, if you want to be a friend of Jesus, then let us pray more. Let us commune more with our Father in heaven. I mean, we have this this table in front of us, and we call it the Lord's Supper. We call it the communion table. Now, what it represents is this, is that every time we partake of this table, it represents communion with the Father, through the Son. And we also think of this table as a means of grace. 
We think about the three historic means of graces, you know, the, the, the word preached, the sacraments rightly administered, and prayer. And every day we get to read the word and pray and commune with the Father. And on Sundays, we get to come together, hear the word proclaimed, but also come to the table so that we might renew our covenant faithfulness with the Lord and be reminded that even though we're sinners, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's good news. You know, on the night when Jesus betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup after supper and he, he poured wine into the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant shed, uh, the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This blood represents the way that you are made or the way that you are forgiven and made clean. His body broken, his blood shed. That's what this means. We call this the communion table because we want to commune with the Father, that we want to walk with him, that we want to walk in Jesus' footsteps, arm in arm, hand in hand. And part of communing is asking. So as you come forward, I want you to think about this. I want you to ask the Father for whatever's on your heart today. Just ask and pray as you come forward and know that the Father delights. He loves listening to his children come and lay their requests at his feet. You know, one of the things that I look forward to, you know, again, we just have one little grandson. He can't do anything except be cute. But I look forward to the day when he can just ask me questions and spending time with him is not a chore. It's a delight. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come to the table, I pray that we would ask and that you would give and that we would ask in your name that we would know that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. And as we come, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know that this, these elements will always remain juice and bread. But Father, that you pour forth yourself upon us spiritually, that you show up spiritually and you pour forth grace upon grace upon us. And Father, I pray that as we come, we would ask um, and we would boldly ask because we have entrance into your family through Jesus, the Son. Father, thank you for all that you give us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.